Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, obviously broadcasting from another location, a room with a bit of bounce in it. I know you know that I get hung up on bounce. I can hear the sound bouncing around a bit, but I'm doing what I can. I'm hunkered down away from reality a bit up in uh, up north. I'm in Big Sur. And I've been up here for three days. There's no TV. The Wi-Fi is spotty. I made a choice. I made a choice to come up here, as I told you guys before, that uh, I was checking out for a few days because I felt like I'd done all I could and that I just, I didn't want to get caught up. I didn't want to be caught up in the frenetic unfolding of uh, numbers and maps all day long and all night long. I, I just, I couldn't handle it. And I, I believe I made the right choice. I'm staying up here. It's, it's still one more day. I'm recording this on Wednesday afternoon, just barely afternoon. All I know right now is that ballots are still being counted. Uh, there's no, no reason to heed any declarations of victory by the monster. And that uh, every ballot uh, will be counted. And, and hopefully in terms of that particular process, uh, it will be honored when the outcome is declared properly. I will say today on the show, we do have an interview with uh, Heidi Schreck. Uh, she's a playwright, and I found out about her by seeing her Broadway play, What the Constitution Means to Me. She was also a, a, a kind of a friend of my, uh, my, my uh, late girlfriend, Lynn Shelton, and I went with her to see the show. She had seen it before. I'd never seen it. And we went and spoke to Heidi backstage a bit, and I, I was really taken with her and her passion, and 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 also just the fact that uh, it, it it educated me. I mean, this is a this is a personal play uh, about the Constitution, about the the lack of representation uh, for large swaths, large numbers of people, uh, and she made it very personal. And I, I think it's it's also relevant. To what's happening right now to the sort of drop off in younger people voting younger people feeling like they're engaged in this process younger people not uh even educated in civics or, or what government means or how it works or the the basic structure or how our voices are to be honored i mean this this play about the constitution is really about women and people of color you know not really being represented at all in the evolution of of even the minimal representation that that they experience to this day 
And looking at the Supreme Court as it stands now and, and the sort of shaking of the foundations of this republic, this democracy, uh, you know, on a constitutional level, it, it just it seems like the right show to air right now. Now, again, I I'm up here and I am detached. I'm, I'm looking out at the ocean at night. I'm looking at stars. I'm, I'm feeling the sort of smallness of being a human in a beautiful world and wondering, you, you know, how how that world is going to look eventually, given that we have ongoing ecological disasters that need to be addressed ongoing governmental disasters that need to be addressed. And, uh, you know, will they be addressed? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that want them addressed, but what do we have to do? What, what is our personal responsibility? It's odd because when I came up here, I felt like, hey, I voted. I've been talking to you guys, you know, twice a week throughout this, being honest about what's happening without being a pundit or being another source of news, but just being a guy that's relating but it starts to kind of really feel like the calling is going to be a little deeper as as we move into uh hopefully what will be a a a biden presidency that obviously trump is going to be an american cult leader the leader of trumpism in this country even after this election so what is required of us as individuals to sort of you know guarantee constitutional representation guarantee uh, the rights of of the underclass you know guarantee that we'll, we'll move towards saving the planet i mean how do you how do we do this how do we how, how, it has to be more than just lip service which i am guilty of we're all i think somewhat guilty of of feeling like we've we've done something and maybe we have but is there more we can do i i i don't know i mean these are thoughts that i i hope we're all entertained but it's it's all terrifying, and and the fact that this was even close is a is a terrible indicator uh, for the country. Look, I had a, a dark night of the soul, I guess as as many of you did. I I don't even know if it's a dark night of the soul as much as it is a sweaty night of terror. So yeah, even up here where I've disconnected myself for for reasons of my own sanity, I didn't want to sit there alone and panic in front of a in front of a TV set with my cat Buster, I, I chose to sort of force myself into a situation where I wouldn't have access or easy access to the the ongoing shit show and you know, uh, you know maps and numbers, maps and numbers, districts and numbers, counties and numbers, names and numbers. And I did avoid it. And I know it's still happening. But nonetheless, I was exhausted yesterday just with the panic and with the fear. And I went to bed at like eight at night up here in the country, on the edge of a cliff. I didn't sleep on the edge of a cliff, but I kind of did, metaphorically in my mind, just uh, sweating through a night of tossing and turning, existential terror, and uh, food dreams, oddly. Some food dreams. I ate some uh, some overly rich food, and I think it fucked with me. I'd, I'd like to blame it all on the food, but I think it's uh, it's the fall of America that was the cause of most of it, and my, my personalizing of it. I, I mean, this is also the thing, is that I, I tend to fear for myself, and I have to sort of expand that, because so we're all in the same fucking boat here. We're all under the onslaught of plague and uh, uh, potential fascism. We're all in that, and I, I have to remember that because I think that is the core of what differentiates a progressive, you know, or a monster, really. 
I mean, there's this this weird sort of identity politics business that goes on that these Republicans have convinced people that there's a huge white, white voting block that always shows up to vote Republican. They've been taught to fear that what they've got will be taken from them, that somehow they will be they will be robbed of their birthright, that somehow their property, their money, their way of life will be taken from them. And that is the most important thing. I want what's mine. I want to keep what's mine. Fuck you. And this particular president is one of the great fuck you artists of all times because he's taken that idea of independence of of it's it's some sort of malignant mutated monster uh, of an idea of uh, of working hard to get what you got and holding on to it because it's different because he steals what he has. He grifts. He does it without paying attention to laws or right or wrong. There's no moral compass. There's no truth compass. It's just that by any means necessary, take it. And somehow or another, that's become easily rationalized by so many people in their minds. They were already selfish, but now it's like, fuck them all and fuck laws and fuck them if they're not smart enough to get it. That's why he's surrounded by fucking grifters. And what about fascism? What about this team sports notion of how government works, the red and the blue teams? Because it turns out that nothing really made a difference in this election. There were bigger numbers, but it wasn't the economy. It wasn't COVID. It wasn't the debates. It wasn't fucking anything. More people voted, but percentage-wise, people voted the way they did in 2016 as they did today. And then I always get concerned about, is it that these Americans crave a strong man? Do they crave actual fascism? Do they want a daddy that will you know, just kind of keep a myopic, sort of narrow-minded view of, of what life should be, and they were willing to sort of kill or vote for that? Is that what it is? Or is it more shallow than that? I just wonder, you know, there's this assumption that Conscience is part of the human brain. The conscience has, has evolved in our species from some sort of primitive idea or, or biological notion that, that, that animals, as we as animals, we, we care for, for others in our species, that conscience evolved. I'm not a philosopher, but it just seems that, the, that conscience is something that requires vigilance and that you know many people who are monsters think they have conscience and that it's completely relative to to the moral construction of your values and that it's easily fucked with. And that, you know, if you watch, depending on what information you take in and your inability or lack of desire to mind your mind so they don't mind your mind, that compromises your conscience. I think we underestimate the epistemic crisis in this country, this lack of, of seeing or accepting or believing what is true if there is repetition involved and you know there is a sort of hypnotic non-truth posited in your fucking brain recording machine and that's what you believe in and i i don't i i know it gets a little crazy but this all goes back to for me to the idea of you know people need to believe in something and i think that at this juncture we are in sort of the united state of a cognitive dissonance of different kinds. I don't know if we ever come out of it, but I do know one thing that, that, that there's something very shallow. It's not even, it's, it's tribalism, I guess, but it's also just, it feels like just team sports. Have you ever noticed on Twitter how many trolls, if you go to their page, it's just sports. Have you ever, it just that there, there's no real civic engagement other than fuck you.
fuck you. And I, I know it goes on both sides a bit, but I think the basic premise in terms of the difference between what is thought to be democratic or, or, or thought to be progressive is that that team wants to make sure that everyone is taken care of, that we you know, spread the resources out, that we all have health care, that we all have these basic things that could make life comfortable, that everybody has a shot, has an equal opportunity to, to make a go of it. You know, that is the idea of, of, of the collective, and that is the idea of the progressives, and that is sort of in, ingrained in the democratic idea. That's one team. That, I guess you would call the blue team. And then the other team is really all about wanting to see the blue team cry. That's it. We just want to see them cry. That's the depth of it. Fuck you. I got mine. And cry, baby. Are you going to cry? Cry. That's the other team. And that's the team that is sort of brought to a fervor, a fury by this lawless fucking king that we have in place right now. Now, this is a nice conversation. It's specific. It's about the American government, about the system, about the Constitution. The filmed version of Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me is now streaming on Amazon Prime. And you'll hear Heidi talk about living in Russia in her 20s and her impressions of the land and the people. But after our talk, she wanted to add some thoughts about her time there. And I thought it was important to make sure you had this context when you're listening to our conversation. She, she wrote me an email, and this is what she wrote. Quote, I was working as a journalist in St. Petersburg in the 1990s, and I watched as our country fucked Russia over by withholding aid and promoting disaster capitalism at the exact moment they were trying to build a democracy. And now we are paying for that dearly. I saw the divide between rich and poor become so huge it was absurd, just like it is here now. I saw social systems fall. I saw nationalism and racism and anti-Semitism become loud and violent. I saw my Russian journalist colleagues get harassed. I also interviewed Putin, which is a less interesting story than it seems, but I thought he was an asshole even back then. Even if we win this week, I fear how bad things could get. I often think of Masha Gessen quoting the Russian phrase, we thought we had hit rock bottom and then someone knocked from below, unquote. She also, Heidi, also wanted to give some context to the part where we talk about her family. So this is something to keep in mind when you hear that section. Quoting Heidi now, there were no abusive men in my nuclear family, but there was a mother who sometimes couldn't function as a mother because of the horrific abuse she endured growing up. So my childhood was quote unquote good, except for the rare but awful days my mother locked herself in her room and cried and wouldn't come out. I've spent my adult life trying to reconcile my two mothers, the brilliant loving one and the one who couldn't function. And I guess I wrote this play about generational trauma because the abuse inflicted by shithead men and the lawmakers and culture that enables those men really does last for generations and it affects all of us. And I think it's part of what's going on right now in this country, unquote. I hope that uh, adds something as you listen to me and Heidi Schreck talk about her show, 
what the Constitution means to me. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Me. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Mark. How are you? You know, I'm doing okay. I have new babies. I just gave birth in April, so I have uh, twin girls. Oh, my God. And uh, it's fantastic, but I, I don't sleep a lot. Twin girls, newly fresh borns. Fresh born. <laughs> now, had, had, was this the plan? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I'm I'm in my late forties, so it was quite planned. And you had uh, and you had them yourself. I had them myself. That's yeah. bold. You just said <laughs> we're going to do it. We're going to roll the dice. We well, it was it, it required a lot of science. Uh-huh. We did IVF. Okay. Um, last August, actually, while I was performing this play, I'm doing um on Amazon, and I uh, we. Did IVF. I got pregnant. Um, I was very excited, uh, and then we went to the doctor. And well, first, first of all, they asked us how many embryos we wanted to put in, and uh, you said nine. I said one. <laughs> yeah. And the doctor said that's good because at your age it could be very dangerous to carry more than one. Right. And I said great. So we put in one, and then um, went six weeks later, and they said they you apparently have two in there. Um, and I said, well, what about that thing where it's yeah. really dangerous for me to have two? Right. And he was like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. And it was. It, 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 yeah. It's good that he switched up his tone. That would not <laughs> exactly. have that would have not have been the time for him to go like, oh, fuck. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I burst into hysterical laughter. And then, uh, yeah, that's pretty much been the how I felt this whole, I guess, 14 months now. Yeah. Well, I mean, congratulations. Thank you. It's really, thank you. They're incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it, it's gotta be a challenging and scary time to realize that, uh, you know, you, you're bringing kids into this situation, but, but you seem to be a, a, a fairly, um, I, I don't know if I, I, I get optimism, but you believe in the power for people to change. I do. I do believe in that. So, yeah. so like uh, maybe uh, you, you're not. Uh, I, I have to assume that when you have children at this juncture in history, you, you, you don't say like, oh, what did I just do? You know, <laughs> right. I mean, there have been a few <laughs> moments <laughs> when I've said, what did I just do? Uh-huh. 
uh, and I am scared for them. Right. I, you know, so much feels precarious right now. Right. And, um, I do sometimes have a, I, I wonder, whatever it's wonderful to be alive sure. so i i do believe that yeah. but i do i do hope there's a future yeah. waiting for them yeah we wonder what the world's going to be well yeah. i mean that's what i mean i guess you know i uh i i saw the show uh with lynn yeah i remember you you came backstage the two of you that yeah. was wonderful yeah and uh i i can't i can't quite remember what your history with her was cuz you both come from seattle right but you work together yeah. Yes, I met Lynn um, in 2001. She was editing. Uh, I was in a movie version of Hedda Gabler that was based on a, um, we had done the play in Seattle with my theater company and she was the editor on that movie. And I remember going to the editing room with my director yeah. to, to meet her and talk with her and thinking, um, she's the smartest person in this room. <laughs> and uh, this was before she decided to become a director, right. but I immediately thought this person is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I loved working with her. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry she's gone and I'm so sorry uh, for you. Uh, yeah. She was a really remarkable person. And, I, and then to watch her, I, I left Seattle right after that and moved to New York and to watch her just kind of break out as this brilliant filmmaker was um i have to say i re I, I remember being not surprised right <laughs> based based on my work with her i thought of course like that person was so giant like there of course she became that and then and then i, I remember kind of learning i think i read an article about her later when my sister's sister came out talking about how she at I think age 37 had decided to become a filmmaker because she'd seen that talk back with Claire Denis, I think, uh -huh. who had not made her first movie until she was 40 years old. Right. And and she realized, oh, I have I have three years left <laughs> <laughs> to do this. <laughs> and I remember actually being really inspired by that. I didn't start writing for film or television until I was in my 40s. And I, I kind of looked to Lynn. So I think there was like a kind of chain effect there where I, uh, she looked to Claire and I looked to Lynn and thought, oh, it's not, it's never actually too late. You always feel, you always think it's too late to do the things you really want. Um, and I, and she definitely made me realize it wasn't too late to do the things I wanted. And you just had twins. And, and I she just had right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes another thing i decided apparently it wasn't too late to do in my late 40s as i run around with this like horrible these horrible back problems and a giant scar on my stomach uh, yeah yeah lynn was uh amazing and it's been really hard to to sort of um uh you know you know you live with loss i think everybody does but you just don't you, you, there's no reason you know, your brain is sort of like, why, why does, you know, and there's no answer to these things, you know. Um, but I always like hearing about her because, like, you know, my experience with her is so limited to the small amount of time we spent with each other. So, like, there's all these other lives that she had that I don't know about.
Yeah. Well, and she, you know, she also had, I didn't learn until later that she, she and I had very similar beginnings in downtown theater in New York right. as well. Like I, she started as an actor and I was very excited to learn that about her. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, yeah, she, and she could do it, you know, she could do the acting. Oh yeah. But when you guys were, when you were in Seattle, like the, the thing about this show, you know, the, what the constitution means to me is like, I had, you know, when Lynn wanted me to go see it and she really sort of sold it, you know, kind of pushed me to it. I was sort of like, I don't want to learn. Is it learning? You know, like there was a, <laughs> it's like, how could this be a good show? I mean, look, look at the title, you know? So <laughs> Yeah, the titles, everybody hates the title. <laughs> I mean, it just sounds like I don't want to go to class today. <laughs> but like yeah. even like watching it again, which I did last night, you know, it's an incredibly moving, uh, engaged um, performance, but it's an engaged, emotionally engaged, uh, you know, story about how, you know, this thing affects us personally, the yes. Constitution. and what Because we all take a lot for granted. And I think that, yes. you know, when you sort of started to see your own life through the through the context of the Constitution, then see the sort of uh, the life of women through it and the life of people who are are uh, underrepresented you know it becomes this sort of beautiful uh tapestry of emotions and facts yeah and uh and it was very you know not only do you learn but you sort of learn there's a sort of a empathy that comes through you know in in if you are paying attention you can't really watch your show and be like what the fuck is this lady talking about <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, you can. I think some people do watch it that way. Do uh, I don't know. I hope not. Yeah. I mean, really, to me, I, I think I didn't really know what the thing was when I started to make it. Um, but it became clear pretty quickly that it was a story about my mom and about my grandma and really trying to understand. I mean, also, I guess actually try to figure out the mystery of my grandma, which was how how did this woman who was really the smartest, strongest woman I knew who loved us all so much and took such great care of her grandchildren, right. like how did she, you know, live in this abusive relationship all these years and, and not, and fail to protect her children? Yeah. Um, yeah. I am without, you know, without spoiling it for, for people too much. I mean, it, I think that what, what was fascinating is at some point, like we can go back, but at some point you realize that, you know, that experience that you had, you know, touring the country, debating the Constitution, you know, it's, there must have been some kind of aha moment where you're like, oh, this is the portal to run my memoir, to run my life through. Right. Right. Like, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't know how you workshop that because there is there, there's sort of a, a, a tradition of this isn't a one person show, but it's a small show and it is a, yes. an autobiographical show. So it does sort of uh, have a vibe of a one person show. And so yeah. many of those are, are kind of straight up kind of uh, this is what happened to me. And there, there's a self-importance to them uh, that can be tedious. Uh, but with this, because of this beautiful device you have which is debating the constitution you can integrate your story the story of your family the story of women the story of domestic abuse and 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 rights for people you know into this broader context of why this country works that must yeah. have been a big day to realize <laughs> that you could do that 
<laughs> that was a, that was actually a big day. <laughs> it was a big scary day. I uh, yeah, I don't know which kind of came first. I think at first I just thought it would be fun to write about being a teenage girl doing this contest. Like the contest itself had a lot of fun stuff about it. I was usually the only girl. Uh, it was the eighties. And what what was it? A debate? It was it a debate thing? It was a speech contest. So you would show up and you had to give an eight minute speech about the constitution. And then my favorite part, as I say in the show was drawing, you had to draw an amendment from a hat and speak about it extemporaneously. And I just found that just so fucking thrilling for some reason. I don't know. I think that's maybe when I was 15, I learned that my, that I had an interesting brain. You know, I really liked thinking on my feet like that. Um, And I, I, when I started making the piece, I just thought that seems like a fun time to write about. It's the eighties. I had really big permed hair. There was a lot, you know, Reagan was president. Right. There's a lot there. It seemed interesting. And then pretty quickly I started, I mean, I gave myself the task of, of um, taking the prompt of the contest seriously, which is, you know, draw a personal connection between your own life and the constitution, which is just like a, a social studies assignment basically. Right. But I thought what would happen if I did that now that I'm at the time in my thirties, I've lived a lot. I've traveled the world. I've had an abortion. I've uh, <laughs> had a really interesting relationship with my own family history. Yeah. I've um, seen a lot of things. Uh and so as soon as I started trying to do that, I, I, I realized what the show was going to be, that it was going to oh, be that's about interesting. these four generations of women in my family. So that's interesting. So you were really kind yeah. of like going back and writing about the experience of doing that when you were a teenager. And then the actual question of the actual, you know, uh, 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 contest. Yes. Yeah. Was provocative. It was a good question, it turned out. <laughs> I just Very good. I didn't realize at 15. Yeah, you know, I was just trying to fake it at 15 and win the money. I was just like, well, what sounds personal? Right. I don't know. Um, and really, the, the, that prompt led me much further than I wanted to go. I'm actually a pretty private person, which seems absurd to say now, considering how much of my life is out now for the world to uh, view. But I... I felt okay talking about having an abortion. I felt that was important to talk about. You know, we we know there are these statistics, one in three, one in four, yeah. depending on what you look at, women have had an abortion. Uh, people, I should say, um, you know, not just women have abortions. Uh, but, and so I knew it was an important thing to not, not that I shouldn't be afraid to talk about that. It was important. Um but I didn't want to talk about the history of violence in my family. That that felt taboo. Um, it's heavy, man. Was, yeah, you know it's heavy yeah. because. Well, I mean, I think that the way you you kind of structure it in, in also again, you know, to set up the history of violence in your family. You know, you set up, you know, Washington becoming a state. You know, plowing under the rights of indigenous people, indigenous women. And then, you know, moving sort of basically hostage white women from the East Coast into this strange, dark logger town with yeah. just a bunch of like kind of like monsters who are chopping down trees and drinking, you know, and they... <laughs> yes. so like, like, I think that you're painting a really good picture of it. Thank you. <laughs> oddly, but oddly, that tempers 
the story of you know the personal story of of domestic oh, yeah. abuse like you know if you were just to come out and just say like you know it, you know I, you're very good at balancing you know the weighty with the comedic but also like there there's something that affords you a, a, a little less you know potential risk when you sort of contextualize the beginning of your, your the known domestic abuse in your family with this horrendous uh, kind of national undertaking to yes. y- yeah you know what i mean uh, well and all the violence is related of course right. but i will say the discovery about the what happened in washington state that was a shocking day for me i i was in my little office looking through old newspapers on the I don't know. I got a subscription to a bunch of those sites and I was reading the old newspapers and I found, you know, the, the, uh, the newspaper from my great, great grandmother's town. And I saw this, these headlines and I was like, there are women being murdered and beat up every day in this newspaper. Like I don't, it was a really, truly shocking thing. I, I had no idea. Uh, and then when I read the story of Asa Mercer, who brought all the white women from the East um, to Washington State back in 1865, um, I that was a shocking story to me. And then I found out they'd made a television show about it, a comedy <laughs> called Here Come the Brides. Really? It was on TV in the 70s. Yeah. It's a really like... Isn't isn't this hilarious? Like, kind but of like, a, show. like, uh, like a little house on the prairie period. Yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, wait. To their credit, they it's a tragic, not a tragic comedy. It's like a dramedy. Sure, sure, sure. But it's that <laughs> <You> era. <laughs> but it's that era, and they yeah, it's all about Washington State. It's all about bringing these women to this town. The 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 the, the sort of inciting incident in the pilot is that this man tries to rape this woman, and so then everybody's like and but it's somehow comic and everybody's like, I guess we better get more women uh, because this guy tried to rape the ugly school teacher. And so we must not have enough women. And then, and then the, that's how the whole series starts. Let's feed the monsters. That's the pilot. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's basically the pilot. (laughs) It's really intense. The monsters are going to hurt people if we don't give them, you know, fresh women. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, but like I've always felt like you know, I've spent time in in Seattle and, and in Washington, and, I, and I'm very I I'm, I I find it that part of the world compelling and that the climate and everything else and the feel of it. I lived in Alaska when I was very young, and uh, oh. a, 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 my second wife was from Seattle, so I, I've had I've had experience with the. But I always felt that there was a darkness there that seems to be yes, you know, very deep. It's like I'd like to think it runs prehistory, but but it does seem that 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 the type of uh, industry that came up in that area was rough, man. It's some yes. real weird kind of like pioneering shit. It, yeah, there's a lot of darkness. I actually feel like Twin Peaks being set there made perfect sense. Yeah, it's just a deep, right. Like history of violence and uh, of course the other side of that is like it it also you know a lot of those women who came over on that boat then ended up being suffragettes and washington gave women the right to vote before many other states right there was um you know interesting it all backfired on him it all backfired (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) that's interesting part i'm surprised you did what made you choose not to discuss some of the other avenues that those women took well, there was just so much. Uh-huh. I actually, there's like, 
seven more hours of play that I just had to cut out. You know, there a bunch was of, not, there's um, a lot of other amendments. I mean, you could keep this going. A- Exactly. <laughs> you could, you, I actually, I did. That was my first very ambitious idea yeah. was that what if I um, kind of could, could I relate once I sort of realized I was telling this personal history, like, could I relate a personal story to every single amendment? And then I realized that would be a, I don't know, a year long play. And also I would probably f- die before finishing it yeah yeah well i mean i think the 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 more practical approach would be like you know is there any way that you could do live events with each amendment in the hat you know with these kids with these teenagers let's just riff it let's just have live let's let's really put you on your feet with you know and just do it for real that's a great idea yeah can i take that idea yeah okay thank you I just pitched a perfect show for you. <laughs> you really did. <laughs> I'll be following up later. With yeah, you your could do people. it, and, and that way you could you could get new teenagers too. Exactly. And you could exactly. and you could even do it at uh, high schools. That's a great idea. There you go. I feel like you just thank you. You're welcome. I'm just I'm looking out for you. You got kids now. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Too too expensive kids. They're all, this is it for you. It's gonna. It's just starting. Um, I hear they're cheaper now. Like it, pretty much, you just got to put them in a box and feed them. They get expensive. <laughs> they get expensive later. Yeah, this is. We'll the, see what happens with college education. Yeah, I guess this is That's, the, yeah. This is the budget days right now. This is okay. Yeah. <laughs> so when you like, uh, but growing up there, I mean, I have. Your 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 immediate family was okay, right? Yes, I had a great immediate family. My my, I have a wonderful father and um, He's a younger still brother. Around? Yes, both my parents are still alive. That's they're good. in they're in Washington. They have not been able to meet the babies, right? Because they're in Wenatchee, and so they haven't been able to able to fly because of COVID, which um, is just um, my mom's going pretty nuts. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It's terrible. Yeah, so it's, uh, the plague has uh, isolated everybody. Yeah. What now, Wenatchee? Where is that exactly in relation to like Spokane? So Wenatchee is right between Seattle and Spokane, sort of right dead in the middle of the state. So not quite. So it's it's not quite white supremacist land. Not quite it's exactly. You know, you're 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 not in meth supremacist land. No, <laughs> no. In, in fact, it's sort of like. <laughs> You're right in the middle. It's like a tiny little paradise before you cross. Is it near anywhere near where uh, where Lynn's parents are? Where Lynn's father is? You know, Chris Twisp or Quisp? What is it? Twi- it? Twisp. Twisp. Yes, it is close to Twisp. Oh, okay. So you, yeah, it's a very beautiful part of the state. Very pretty. Um, but very far. You know, Seattle's the nearest big city, and that's Spokane what two hours, second. three hours. It's, it's almost three hours between yeah. to either of them. Yeah, Spokane is like four hours. It's weird. I kind of, I was in Spokane, you know, even, you know, in its like demise, I I found it a very charming place. Is it? My um, dad's family is from there. So my, I visited there a lot. My, my grandparents on that side, uh, also German and Swedish, um, lived in Spokane. And actually my great grandma on that side was Bing Crosby's uh, cook. She was a Swedish cook. So yeah, that's my what a great <laughs> what a great show business story! You're connected. Right. You're, totally connected. She grand- hated him. Yeah. She hated him so much. <laughs> I hear he wasn't pleasant. I hear no, he's, he's a, not a good man. An abusive, boozing guy. He was. Yep. And she what? So she lived in Hollywood. 
No, he lived in Spokane with his family. Bean Crosby did. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Yep. That I had no idea. I thought the only thing that Spokane was famous for were the boots I'm wearing. White's boots. <laughs> no. no, it's now it's white. Know about Bing Crosby? White's boots and Bing Crosby, and your great <laughs> what is your grandmother was his Swedish My, cook. Yeah, Elsa. She was his Swedish cook. So you know, you knew Elsa when you were a kid. I did. Yeah. I used to dress up like her. That was my favorite thing to do was to borrow her glasses and like her shawl and dress up like an old lady. Oh, <laughs> like she must four. have loved that. Did you, did you she do did. a character of her just be, telling horrible Bean Crosby stories? <laughs> was that your first one person show is Ilsa and it's just you doing an hour of what an asshole Bean Crosby was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she was also the one, maybe that was my other grandmother. She was the one who said, she came from Sweden when she was 19 and um, apparently they'd been passing out these flyers in Sweden, like come to America. It's the promised land. There was a, a famine. Well, in yeah, but, that's what, and, but you know, they did that because they, they, they wanted these, the Scandinavians to come plant the country up there because they couldn't grow anything. So they'd give them, and they knew that the, the people in Sweden, they're like, they can grow things in rocks. So they wanted right. them to come I read this in the, that book Ian Frazier wrote, The Great Plains. But I'm sorry, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's right. Yeah. That makes total sense. Well, then she said when she got here, she was like, she would all be like, you know, they said the streets were paved with gold, but really they're paved with shit. <laughs> she knew. So get me back she to knew. Sweden. She was surprised yeah. she didn't go back. Man. I mean, I mean, right now, I'm just, I can't believe they all left. I'm like, what were they, what were they thinking? <laughs> Well, well, now they're like I, I don't know. I think I think that their big uh, COVID plan is backfiring. But yeah, I, I well, that's true. I that's spent some uh, I spent some time there. Have you been there? I've never been. I actually lived in Russia for two years, and I never, I still have not visited Sweden. Where did you go? Uh, I don't know. What's the big city? What's the uh, Stockholm? Yes, I did. I did a show there in Stockholm. I saw the ship. Oh. I ate some of the food. You know, like it's weird when you only have a couple of days or in these countries where you're like, I went there. What'd you do? I ate the stuff that you eat at that place. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the dumpling, yeah. the, that country's the, dumpling. The meatball, the dumpling, yep. the bread, uh, the, the <laughs> what's the berry? The It's not cranberries. There's a berry. Oh, lingonberry. The lingonberry thing. I ate some of that. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw the boat, you know, that Viking boat. And I, that was that. I went, oh, right. But yeah. but I went, there's also. Well, you really, you make it sound so exciting. I, it's I great. I loved go. it. It loved it. Great museum there. And you can walk along the water. It's very, it's very nice. I, it's, 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 it, everywhere is pleasant, but here, um, right now. <laughs> Anywhere you go outside the United States, you're like, oh, it's not the main thing here. Like there, right. you know what I mean? The, the chaotic fucking, you know. They're not currently living in a codependent relationship with a lunatic. No. But that aside. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, there's other fascists around. But Some right of now, them are. Sure. But yes, we ha we have a particularly uh, special version of that. Yeah, it's uniquely American, I think you can say. This is I, our take. Yeah. What, what's the yeah. American take on autocrat? It's happening now. Enjoy. We made him. Um, <sighs> but, okay, but that, okay, so... You're growing up there. So that side of the family seems your father's side seems grounded. And, and there's a history of uh, hardworking uh, Swedish people who came over. Yes. And then your, your mother's side is just the dark lager. Well, yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think that um, 
I mean, that side also was, and they were both, they're both like half German, half Swedish. That side was also, you know, really hardworking right. people. And sure. then, um, but, but yeah, but growing up in a more, that place, according to my research, was just a more violent place than where my dad's family settled. Wenatchee was. Um, uh, it, this was actually um, Castle Rock, so more Western Washington. Okay, so where and, my and, mom's and, was. and because that was a a stronghold of the logging industry. Exactly. Yes, I think it was just more remote. There were, you know, it was as I say in the play, it was mostly men who were there to to log. Um, right. And it was it was pretty harsh living conditions for quite a while. Um, for so some I reason, I'm it, thinking McCabe and yeah. Mrs. Miller. I'm thinking like, yeah, you know, yes. right. That town. Totally. That town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like, um, but, but her family was amazing too. Sure. I mean, my grandma happened to marry a really bad man, but um, I mean, part of the create working on the play, that was one of the myths. I, there were many sort of um, things I unlearned while making the play. And one of them was like the myth of the, the one bad man, right? Where I sort of grew up being like, oh, if only that bad man hadn't come into my That's weird. I was just going to say that. Family's life. So what is, yeah. what is that myth? The myth is that all it takes is one bad man to set a history of, of uh, re re repetitive, a legacy of repetitive uh, uh, abusive relationships. Uh, yes, that. And then I also think that, that the one bad man is somehow uh, a lone figure, not... Um, not part divorced of a, from a, la a larger culture of <laughs> male violence, oh. divorced from a larger culture of laws that don't protect people from that kind of violence, divorced from centuries of Western law that <laughs> right. that says you can beat up and kill your wife. You know, it was sort of like I, I really started to see him as um, a, a symptom. And then I think because of the focus of the show, also just some a person enabled by laws to to take out his violence on children and take out his violence on you know what i mean like that that the law it, it, i think in some ways continues to enable that and and had for centuries and that that's the macro but the micro is still yes. the one bad man the micro is still the one bad <laughs> yeah she ended up with right with a yeah, the wrong person. Yeah, and, and and it happens all the time. I think that a lot of the statistics that you cite and and the way you sort of capture in the show, you know, how how does this negligence happen when you kind of share in the show those bits and pieces of those proceedings in past Supreme Courts, uh, you know, where men these men are clearly uncomfortable and having arguments over semantics when there's really lives in the balance uh, shows you know a, a strange. A disconnect, uh, an empathy, a disconnect. There's no, they, there's no empathy there, and I think is the point right. that they can't see how their their policies are 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 making it dangerous, specifically for you know women and people of color. Right. Right. Yeah, that was the thing I, that struck me the most when I listened. I listened to hundreds of hours of Supreme Court cases, and um, particularly in the case you're talking about. Uh, which has to do with an abusive man. Um, I, I was just shocked at how dissociated the judges seemed from their own feelings. You can sort of hear it in their voices as as, as they sort of ramble on, like you know, does shall mean shall? I don't know. Sometimes it means shall. Sometimes it means this. And and in the meanwhile, at the center of this case is a 
painful, horrific story that they've just stopped um, talking about. Talking about, yeah, and and I think I think right now as as we're having apparently this national debate over whether the Constitution is is a living thing or a dead thing, uh, I, I feel like I, this idea that that you could interpret law without putting without keeping the living human beings at the center of your uh, argument and keeping them. Right. In your mind and in your heart as you're making these decisions. But I, th- I think, if, yeah. But it feels like that disconnect goes like that. That disconnect applies to the Senate. It applies to yes. the leadership in power that everybody sort of seems to be insulated in their job and in their bubble and in whatever numbers they're fighting for. That there are these broad ideas around, you know, uh, uh, fiscal support and, and fiscal responsibility that that really come down to numbers without really having stories yes. attached to them. Right. Right. And and but that case, that was just insanity that it's really about a woman who had a restraining order on her husband who then took the kids, killed them. uh, And she wanted recourse, you know, for the the police not, you know, defending or or prosecuting the restraining order. And that and that argument that you have from the Supreme Court is about whether there was a constitutional responsibility on behalf of the police department. To protect that woman and her children, and they decided no. Yes, that was the decision, and that's fucking nuts. It's. I agree. I. I hundred percent agree that it's fucking nuts. But that 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 was the issue of of you know uh, originalism, right? Yes. And intent. So that yes. Yeah, I, you know, the way you sort of flesh out the, 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 the kind of negative rights, positive rights and all that stuff, I wouldn't have known any of that. And I could have went to my grave not knowing that, you know, and now I know it. And, you know, and I find it uh, I, I think that like when you're my age and you learn these things, you're sort of like, oh, wow, that well, that really changes everything in the way I think or understand things. But I think more importantly, the show may uh, sort of instigate younger people to realize, like, I got to get involved with this shit. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. It certainly <laughs> made me feel that way. Like, I, I think even the the grownups on the show have all become more politically active just because because of the things we all learned while making the show. I have, I knew nothing about positive rights or negative rights. I honestly only learned about that because of that case. I listened to that case so many times and I was like, I don't understand. This makes zero sense to me. She went to the police, you know, like 14 times in one night and said, my husband has my children. Will you please go look for them? And they were like, go home lady. You're being dumb, you know? And, uh, and the fact that she could not sue that police department is, uh, I just couldn't fathom how our laws work. So I actually, that's one of, I asked a friend who knew a constitutional scholar to hook me up. And I said, can I just please take you out to dinner? And can you just explain to me? And it was a very long dinner because it's very confusing. But that's when I le- first learned about positive rights and negative rights. The two rights. types the of constitutions. The two types of constitutional rights. And, you know, and that's when I learned that, that all modern constitutions, you know, ours is the oldest one still in use. It's really an antique. Uh, most other constitutions were made after the 20th century, and they all contain positive rights, which are like affirmative rights. Let's say the government has to, you know, right. uh, protect you. It 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 has to um, provide basic things like uh, health care and a certain standard of living. It has to protect people 
uh, on, you know, it has to protect minorities. Like it has gender protections in it, it has racial protections, uh, ability protections. Um, and a lot of them contain um, clauses that protect, that say that you have a right to clean air and water, that you have a right, that it's the government's duty to look after the environment. And I was just sort of gobsmacked. I had no idea. Yeah, that- and it's interesting that, like, you know, even knowing that all that stuff is proactive and good, that this country seems to be wrestling with the ideas, like, we can bend our old document. We will, you know, instead of, like, evolving that, why not just bend this society back to the 1700s right, without right. taking into consideration that most of the government has been turned out by corporate pimping and that, you know, all you're going to end up with if you do that ex- explicitly is fascism. So, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. that's really what's going on now. I, I agree with you. And there's enough dum-dums to be like, you know, but what about liberty? Oh, shut the fuck up. I'm sorry. There's a, anyway. No, no. I, yeah. I feel like the notion of liberty has really gotten twisted. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we yeah. you know, we have a right to spread plague. Right. You know, don't tell us what to do. You're not you're not the boss of me. Whereas <laughs> right. a positive rights constitution be like, we are kind of the boss of you and it's public health. So. Yeah, or you know, we have. I think I feel like when I think of that kind of constitution, I think of the idea that um, the. I feel like the statement it's making is that we're all responsible to one another. I know you would think that people could yeah would get the hang of that, but see, like the nature of capitalism and the free market has twisted everything right. up and mind fucked yes. so many people. It's all very calculated on some level, right? Yeah. Yes, it is. I think people have lost their way. And and that's yes. and that's reinforced uh, by by the representatives of malignant business interests. But I think we're getting away from, you know, why why you went to Siberia and how you. <laughs> so when <laughs> what. Uh, but I think what's interesting to me when I was thinking about, you know, how this evolved for you is that, you know, this was not, you know, what you set out to do. You set out to be an actor. Yes. And you know this and a and a writer, right? But yes, yeah. Uh, and and this sort of evolved, and because I mean, you've been you know, working at it. Like, when did you start? You started acting in Seattle. I started acting. Uh, yes, I actually started acting when I was a kid. My mom had a a Shakespeare company for kids called the Short Shakespeareans. Really? Yes. Uh, it still exists. Actually, they still they there's still she handed it over to an amazing woman and it, it it's been going now for almost 40 years children's theater is great yeah yeah so i got to play i got she of course cast me in all the lead roles um so i got to play all the great shakespearean heroines between the ages of six and 12 um <laughs> i really cut my teeth some, on the best that's some heavy shit uh, it's, yeah, actually, we only did the comedies. We didn't do oh, okay. Macbeth or anything. <laughs> you um, didn't do Lear? I'd like to see a six-year-old. <laughs> I would actually like to That'd see that, That'd be great too. with some six-year-old kid with a beard doing that <laughs> yeah. last monologue. It would probably be quite moving, actually. It would actually, be great. that's a really good idea. There, I feel like you're you pitching go. a lot of excellent ideas today. Run with them. Today. The run with them. Yeah, I, I'm going to. <laughs> I got to earn that money. Um, yeah. So that was, I did that as a kid and then I acted in college. And then yes, when I, I, I took a little detour, I spent a couple of years in Russia. What is that? What is that about? Who journalist. does that? 
who <laughs> so you what are you uh, you're, me, you're in yeah. college for what I, I, I double majored English and theater okay. with a minor in Russian language because oh. I, I really liked, um, you know, I was a, I loved Dostoevsky. It was my favorite. Sure. And, and you uh, wanted to be able to yeah. read it in Russian? I did want to be able to read it in Russian and I, I thought it was a beautiful language. I also kind of grew up obsessed with um, Russian dancers particularly Brishnikov, sure. uh, who was a big, you know, big crush. Uh, so you had a plan. So I had a plan to, <laughs> to meet Brishnikov. In Russia. I still haven't met him, although I've met now his daughter, who's a wonderful actress. Uh-huh. Um, I've actually never confessed to her. My, I'm sure she knows all the women my age are, have, right. had huge crushes on her father, but I've never talked to her about it. Um, Misha, so, right? Anna, um, yeah, Misha. Yeah, Misha. Yeah, I watched the Turning Point uh, over and over. Um, but you were, but also Russia has, uh, you know, a, a long history of theater and film, and have made, yes. uh, you know, you know, despite uh, you know whatever horrors uh, they w- were responsible for uh, governmentally, they they definitely changed uh, theater and they changed film and they changed dance. Yes. Yeah, yes. there's definitely a, a, a totalitarian work ethic, I guess, that really delivers the goods. There's, I think, the work ethic. I also think, you know, the spirit of creating art in in the face of right. probably all of that right. horror. You know, that sure. was. Um, uh, but yeah, they, obviously, the they changed. I mean, they invented acting as we know it. Um, yeah, I, I I loved living there. I lived in Siberia for a year, a little tiny town called Tinda, and then I moved to St. Petersburg. You um, love Siberia? I, I feel like um, you know that you don't see that bumper sticker a lot. Uh, <laughs> I heart Siberia. What? Uh, <laughs> what was it like I mean, there? It it was so unbelievably beautiful. I can't. I um. I lived uh, in this place called Tinda on the on this river called um, well, is there's this amazing lake called Baikal, which is like the largest. It's like a lake that's like an ocean, which is one of the most incredible places on earth. And then I lived on this Amur River, um, and you know when I first got there, everything was covered in snow and ice. And then um, spring came and everything melted, and it was it was just the like the birch trees and the river and the like miles of step, I guess yeah. you call it. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was one of the most physically beautiful places I've ever been. Um, and you're, yeah. how's your Russian? It's, it's, it's okay. I had, so my brother followed me there and he was a journalist in Moscow for 10 years. And now he lives in Prague with his family and his wife who's Russian. And so my niece and nephew speak Russian and they, I thought my Russian was still really good, yeah. but they just mock me mercilessly <laughs> yeah. when I try to speak. They imitate my accent. And um, so I guess it's not that good. How many siblings do you have? I just, my, just my brother, younger brother. And so then you go to St. Petersburg and you were there total for two years in Russia? Yeah. Wow, it's a long yeah, time. Yeah, I actually fell in love with someone in Siberia and we moved to St. Petersburg together and I got a job at a newspaper. You, and you were what? You were like, what, 20? 19? 23. You fell in love with a Russian? 23, 24. I did, yeah. What happened to that guy? He, um, he, this is going to sound like fiction, but he's a Russian Orthodox priest. 
Um, you look he, what you did. Yeah. He's. <laughs> 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 I know. He has a very long beard. Really? Uh, yeah, he. He yeah, he, he was a really he is uh, talk about him in the past tense. He was a really brilliant guy, very into um honestly like occult things. And then somehow that um shifted into an interest in religion, which of course had been banned for so long, like while he was growing up, and and he just became more and more fascinated with religion while we were um dating and then uh, several years after we broke up he decided to become so you you dated a a russian witch who found (laughs) that just uh you know piecemeal interest in occult ritual was not working out and there was a much deeper more historical type of magic that seems to be more reliable uh but you get to and you get to dress as a wizard (laughs) (laughs) you've really You've summed it up. Good. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad he's found his wizardship. Yeah. Do you, are you in touch? No. Several years ago, we he Facebook friended me, um, and then we corresponded a little bit, and then he disappeared from Facebook. Oh, I wonder what happened. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. Okay. It's so weird because rarely does anything coming out of Russia disappear from Facebook. It seems to just <laughs> it take, yeah, it's probably there somewhere on take the dark over Facebook. Facebook. Yep. Um, okay, so you come back here and and then you decide to commit to acting. Is that what happens? Yeah, when I came back, um, I came back to Seattle because um, it was near my hometown, and a lot of friends uh, from college had moved to Seattle. But, but, and hold on one second, real quick. Yeah, Were you studying yeah. acting in Russia or no? No, I not did not. All. Although I did, I no, but I did work. Um, I went to the theater all the time, and I worked as a theater reviewer for a little bit. Um, so yeah, but I was not studying. You know John Bernthal, the actor. Oh yeah, yeah. He spent. That's he learned to act in Russia. Oh, he did. Yeah. Was it? Um, was it through that Harvard program? Yeah. Or did he? Yeah. 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 No, that program sounds incredible. Oh, I wish I had been able. The to The only study problem was there, like he got back when he got back. He was like you know like you know you guys don't know how to act. Yeah, Harvard sent him there, but he comes back and he was just sort of like, yeah, you're a bunch of weenies. You don't know what real men do when they act. <laughs> so he's like, yeah. I, I, I get that. Yeah. I mean, really, you go. You, well, also, they, you know, they get to rehearse their plays for seven months before they go on stage where because of capitalism we get the three and a half weeks you know yeah and it's make or break they throw you onto the stage yeah. and see what happens yeah. three and a half months and then maybe a week yes if, you, <laughs> if things don't go well right did you ever study um, uh suzuki i did yeah i'm so wild that i fucking knew that man you know how i knew- how did you know that no i do know how you want to know how i knew okay how you act out your crying and when you hold your core to find your center. When you put your hand on your stomach. Wow. And then the way you stopped yeah. when you were doing the crying, I'm yep. like, she did Suzuki. There's no way that woman didn't do Suzuki. Because I had my, uh, my, uh, my, uh, an ex-wife of mine studied it and I was able to see it. Uh, you know, I was able to go and watch it being done. And I'm like, that's, that's got to be where she got that. 
I feel so exposed. <laughs> I can, how many people are like that Suzuki lady? Uh, that lady <laughs> did the Suzuki. <laughs> that's so wild. I'm so happy that I was right. Yeah, that's really, you, you kind of took me off guard there. That's what did it? I was like, did he do some kind of deep dive? But there's no there's no record of me doing Suzuki. No, I, I made saw, sure I to actually, scrub the internet clean I, of all of that. So. I, saw, I saw it in practice. <laughs> you did, apparently. <laughs> Wait, was this your wife from Seattle? Nope. Ah, okay. Because there is a lot of Suzuki in Seattle. No, it was uh, my my the, my first wife went on to become a therapist, but uh, but she was studying to be an actress, and she was kind of dug in with that. I mean, she was doing the Suzuki yeah. training, and and I never quite got it, you know. But but over time, you know, she explained it to me, and then I went to see them, you know, where they, you know, let the family and and friends come in to to watch a performance to to you know reassure you it's not a cult or something too fucking weird, right. <laughs> And, you know, you just, but it's not, it's not convincing, right? No, You're... no. Yeah. I, it's like, I, I yeah. got it. You know what I mean? I, I understood the the technique, but it is sort of rare and, and it's specific. And I don't think yes. a lot of people know about it. Right. Right. Do, do you study it in New York? No, actually in Seattle, oh, wow. there um, were just a couple of amazing teachers at university of Washington uh, that I studied with first in high school, actually. And then, and then it's, yeah. But it's it was interesting how effective it is because like you know whatever you've however you've trained yourself as an actress, you know you, everybody takes a bit from here and there. But I was so clearly able to lock into those two actions, which were fairly, yeah. you know, um, intense and you know emotional and 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 powerful. Both the the way you you cry. Uh, as a, yeah. the acting that out, but also that just the other device of centering, you know, in moments of of emotion, where I see you do it, you kind of align yeah. yourself, in uh, that you know. So it is a powerful uh, uh, method. It's interesting because I I um, while I was working on the play, I these two books were really important to me. One of them is called Trauma and Recovery, and the other is the body keeps the score, mm. which is a book all about how um, uh, trauma lives in your body wow. and also inherited trauma lives in your body. And, oh, and wow. um, uh, so I think that that kind of idea uh, was with me the whole time I was rehearsing the play of thinking the, I do talk about it at one point in the play, like the, the places in the play where my throat, I could feel it tense up. Mm. I was actually pretty tense the whole time I was performing um, and, and kind of trying to figure out where that came from and why. Um, and yeah, just thinking about it kind of in a way thinking about the play as a little bit of an exorcism of some of that stuff uh, out of my body. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Right. And like, and I think that like from my recollection of Suzuki, that seems to be a very decent method to exercise. Yes. <laughs> I think I, that's right. Well, it's very, yeah, it's very physical and there's yeah. a lot of uh, releasing of, of things. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of grunting yeah. and stomping. Right. And, yeah. Man. But, uh, yeah. but that's interesting. What are those two books again? One, one is called trauma and recovery. Uh, the other is the body keeps the score. Trauma and recovery is, I, I think one of the most brilliant, um, I, I guess like psychoanalytic texts of, it was actually re recommended to me by my husband's therapist. Mm. 
via my husband yeah. uh, many, many years ago. Um, but one of the things it talks about is it, it actually makes the connection between um, th this therapist worked a lot, both with um, um, military uh, veterans who were grappling with PTSD yeah. and with sexual assault survivors. Right. And she noticed the similarities between the two kinds of symptoms and what what both groups were going through and sort of made a larger connection through that um, about violence in our culture and the way it affects uh, both people who go to war on behalf of the country and um, the victims of violence and sexual assault in the country, which are often women. Um, and she, yeah, she delves into that. That's interesting. In a, in a really profound way. Yeah. And, that, that, and, that, and, that, and then that yeah. sort of combined with the idea of uh, hereditary behavioral, uh, like, like, I think it was interesting in the show how, you know, you, you don't find it necessary to define why the darkness is in you. That you know, is it are is it a legacy of abuse that goes back generations that causes this depression, or is it chemical? And does it matter? Right. You, you know, right. it is what it is ultimately. Yes. But it, it, you know, to have the framework to think about that, to to think about look, because that that's fascinating. There's no way it isn't true that even if you break the cycle of abuse, the emotional nature. Uh, that is underpinning to somebody who is willing to put up with that or is an abuser is still going to be in you. You just, right. you know, you just evolve to make different choices on purpose. Yes. Right. Yes. yes. You evolve to make different choices. I will also say you have different. I, I, I mean, I question a little bit the phrase like someone who's willing to put up with it because I feel like, um, I mean, this is one of the things that I discovered making the play is like, I, I'm in part able to make many different choices than my grandmother because like the legal framework of my life is much different than hers. I, I have different laws protecting me. Yeah. And also like the cultural, um, the culture has evolved. Thank God. And yeah, you know? don't, so, I, I guess, I, but, don't underestimate yeah, the power yeah. of terror, fear. Right. Yeah. I, it was my mistake. Oh, yes, yeah. Not, right. So and, I and can I would reframe say, obviously, that. Yeah. 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 No, I just, I, but I think, yeah, I'm 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 only calling it out because I feel like it's what I grew up thinking like oh what what was wrong with my grandmother that she stayed in this relationship and now I understand the I I understand it in a much I have a much larger perspective. I understand it as it relates to the laws of our country, as it relates to our culture, as it relates to the um misogyny in our culture. Um and then of course it's it's just true for many women today and and I because of the play I've also I, I've been able to talk to a lot of people who've who've been in relationships like this now and and really understanding that you you can think that you're a person who would never end up in this kind of relationship and and discover that you're absolutely wrong, you know, and that it it's not it doesn't always have to do with there being something uh it's not always about you. You know, abusers are often incredibly charming people who don't sort yeah, of show I mean, their true nature until you're you're very much connected to them. Right, right. And, and, and right. I mean, like, I think that when I was younger, I was emotionally abusive person, you know, and I do. You do? Yeah. Oh, for yeah. sure. 
Yeah. And I, you know, it took me, you know, a lot of, you know, heartbreak and, um, you know, willingness to, you know, figure out where that comes from, you know, where that fear ultimately and that kind of inability to uh, uh, connect emotionally in an appropriate way comes from, you know, and it is family stuff. But yeah. but over time, you know, not unlike recovery, you know, from alcohol and drugs, you know, you learn to make different choices and, and you start to see, you know, if you're willing, who you are, you know, in that dynamic and, and what's that, what, what that is, you know. And how do you, um, I mean, you don't have to say what it was, but, but is there a, I guess, like, how old were you when you sort of started to realize that and did something push you toward that realization? Oh. And, well, I mean, and I was really just, just a, yeah. a defensive, kind of ragey guy yeah. who, who always thought, you know, he was, you know, he was being fucked with or manipulated, was not able to trust uh, love or, or wasn't really capable of, of letting myself give it in a way. You know, it was all kind of childish stuff. But, you know, childish rage when you're 35 is a yeah. very ugly thing, right? Right. And I think ultimately the beginning of the education was, you know, once I got sober and I entered into a relationship with a woman who helped me get sober in, in a state that was already volatile, you know, I, I, you know, I made her miserable. And, you know, and I was emotionally destructive and she had to, you know, like extricate herself from me. Right. You know, right. Uh, through Al-Anon and through understanding codependency and me understanding yep. all these, whatever the labels are. It was like that was the beginning of the awakening, but it took a while to sort of reel it in. It's sort of about like deciding to kind of reckon with yourself, right? Well, you got to decide it as opposed to yeah. keep repeating it, right? You know, yes. you got to, you know, yep. because people are broken from a fairly young age, you know, and, you know, and it's like, you know, either you're, you're going to be able to fucking stop it or not but like right. usually i think these injuries that create these monsters are are, are put upon people when they're fucking children oh yeah and and then yeah, you know absolutely and then the wiring is there and you right. know and if you keep honoring the wiring and finding participants to honor that wiring with you there's not much impetus to change until you like you know end up alone or crying or in jail or whatever the fuck range of right. abuse you're on you know I think the hardest thing for me is, and I've been in therapy for almost 15 years now, I, that um, also like realizing that just knowing that isn't enough, no. right? There's a point when you're like, oh, I see this is all, you know, this is this wiring that like, you, yeah. as you call it, that, that was sort of installed when I was pre language, yeah. probably like it, it's, it's so wild. ancient yeah. and so, and I don't. I don't even know sometimes that that's what's happening. Um, and, and now I see it and now I understand that like I'm being driven by these things that what were planted so long ago and, and that should be enough. And then realizing, Oh my God, that's not, that's just like the very beginning <laughs> of starting to like change some of that right. habitual. Because you have to make, stuff. you have to choose against your instincts, which are faulty. So, right. so it's very unsatisfying. The, the, the cure is making different choices for yourself and they don't feel great because no. they, you know, they're not honoring, you know, how you get fed emotionally. Right. Right. <laughs> Right. So everything feels a little flat. Yeah, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Or like you're starving, right? right. Like you're emotionally starved. Right, right, like right. This God is, damn it. I have to like Why can't be you able to it? endure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where's the drama? Right. <laughs> it's on the stage now. Good for you. Congratulations. 
<laughs> but no, but you, I mean, you talk about that and I, I feel bad that I kind of, you know, that, I mean, you know, correcting language is important uh, in the sense that, you know, me saying someone who's willing to put up with it, it, it is, uh, it, it is not, you know, taking into consideration what abuse does to people and what fear does to people yes. and what, you know, uh, uh, you know, honoring, you know, that victimness does to people you know, in terms of uh, they might not see a way out for themselves. Right. And and the fact that they might be right. I mean, that was one of the discoveries for me, too. Um, actually, when I listened to Jessica's case, to the case we talked about yeah. earlier and 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 learned the statistic that like the most dangerous moment for a woman in that situation living with an abusive partner uh, or a person living with an abusive partner is the moment that they decide to leave. That's just statistically when they're most likely to be harmed or killed. Um, so there's also a kind of unassailable logic at work, which is like, I, I I'm actually in a position and there's no, there's no good answer. Like I stay and I'm in danger. I leave and I'm in danger. So also just realizing the enormous um, stakes of, huh. of making a decision to leave someone. I mean, obviously that, that there are, this is a spectrum, right? There are, you know, there's leaving an emotionally abusive partner and then there's leaving a physically abusive partner. But um, yeah, just sort of realizing like all of the, all of the factors that are in play that make it about so much more than like whether someone's willing to leave or right. Stay. And, you know, and like obvious, yeah. obviously all of this is discussed in relation to your family, in relation to this case and in relation to what type of protections the Constitution uh, right. uh, 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 provides for us. But like, I, I don't want this. Like, I feel like we're talking about this and people are gonna be like, God, I'm not going to see this show. This is like, I, <laughs> but, uh, holy shit. I can barely get through this conversation. But um <laughs> But I just want to make clear there's a lot of levity. There's a lot of fun in the show. Yes. There's comedy. There's, you know, there's provocative things. And you you bring a, a high school student up to debate with you on whether to abolish a constitution or, or keep the constitution. What are the benefits of keeping it? Because there are people that are protected that would be harmed if you abolish it in the interim of creating the new one. Like, it's all very fun and good and exciting. There's a, a gay man on stage that comes out and talks, you know. There's a lot. There's something for everybody. There's <laughs> there is something for everybody. I mean, I hope I did it, and it is also very funny. I mean, I really thought it was going to be a comedy when I started. Like I said, I thought just like the '80s permed hair and the the fun 15 year old girl, and I thought it would be like a cheeky comedy or something. I, <laughs> and I think that spirit remains. No, no, I know? think structurally, I, yeah. it's uh, not a it's not a tragedy. It's not a drama. I mean, no, you know, structurally, the arc is you start where you start, you move through, you know, sort of the the impetus for the conversation, then you end up, you know, kind of like uh, united with a, a 14 year old talking about, yeah. uh, you know, mundane things in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she's fantastic and also hilarious. I don't I don't I don't I don't think I saw it with the one who was in the special. Did I? I think I saw it with the Maybe other not. one. So both you can actually see. So Rosdelli, who originated the part, is um, is in the film. And then you can also see Thursday Williams, who performed with us at New York Theater Workshop and on Broadway, who's really a killer debater. Terrifying. Like when she showed up in the room, she came in 
to audition and said she just got done debating at NYU Law School and she'd been in the Sonia and Celina Sotomayor Institute. And, you know, she explained strict scrutiny to us and we were like, oh no, um, this girl's like the smartest girl we've ever met. And she she really upped the, the debate got a lot better when she joined our team. Um, and so you can see her debate too, actually. At the end there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. at the end. And then the, you can click on another. Okay. Um, like special material and you can see uh, you see me debate to abolish the constitution and Thursday debate to keep it. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. I think like my inability to debate speaks to like my uh, um, emotional uh, sensitivity and uh, immaturity and slight uh, propensity <laughs> for abusiveness. Cause within two turns of a dip um, uh, of a debate, I'm like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know, what the fuck are, who the fuck are you? Who are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's not that's not that debate won't win. you won't win the debate that way <laughs> <laughs> i know uh, it's uh it's ultimately childish business i've been doing emdr a bit you know that oh i my mom has been doing that she says it's fantastic oh has she oh good yeah around her childhood yeah, just, trauma yeah she's found it really helpful mm. um it's good if you have you know ice real incidents you know, like it's different right. for me. It's like the childhood stuff. I've done it a little bit on that, but it's sort of broad, like it's emotional neglect and inconsistency and chaos, you know, but, but like, you know, just working it around, like lately I've been doing it around that last week of Lynn's life when she was sick right. in the house, you know, here, not knowing that she was dying and, you know, right. treating it as like a flu or something. And then, you know, eventually, you know, on the day that she was supposed to go to the doctor, you know, she collapses and that was the end of it. So like, you know, the feelings around that are so specific. And yeah. so I've been doing it around that and it, it is helping me, I think, uh, integrate it, you know, so I can just, you know, live with the loss, you know, but, but I think it's very effective for that kind of stuff. If you have a point of entry. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I, um, I actually, my mom taught me this thing, yeah. which I don't, which is called, uh, it's sort of silly, but it's called a butterfly hug where you put your, you cross your arms like this on your chest and do this. <laughs> oh yeah. And, uh, and I, uh, I have actually found it somewhat helpful. Where'd you learn when, that? Is that a, like flash from, on from when you were a kid or is it a new thing? No, no, it's a new thing. I think it, it may be related to her EMDR thing. Like I can with see the that. EMDR. I'm not sure, but it's like somehow it kind of grounds you. I think. Oh and, yeah. And yeah. You go like this. Yeah. And it kind of, um, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause the, yeah. the EMDR, the EMDR I do is not with the light thing with the moving eye movement. It's like these buzzers that you hold. There's a couple of oh. different machines and I'm not right, exactly right. sure that I understand the magic of it, but it seems to do something. The process of yeah. it does something. So when before you did this show, you worked with Annie Baker, though, right? On a big thing. Yeah, we've done. I was in her play uh, Circle Mirror Transformation, which was sort of her first big breakout play in New York in 2009. Uh, she actually wrote a part specifically for me, which was a great honor. I actually at the, at the time I met her, she was like a 25 year old kid who like came up to me at a theater and said, she had her like beautiful long hair and her little converse. And uh, she said, she introduced herself and said she was writing a part for me. And I was like, okay, yeah. thank you. That's Th very sweet. Yeah. Thank That's you, little girl. That's cute. Thank That's you. nice. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. 
And then, of course, she turned out to be this bona fide genius. Um, I know. I t- I've interviewed so her. I, got, I, I like her stuff a lot. I know. I love that episode. I listened to that episode. And then we worked together. Um, I mean, we're we're good friends, yeah. but uh, we also worked together on I Love Dick. We wrote an episode of that show together called A Short History of, of Weird Girls, um, which was is still one of my favorite things I've ever written. And working with her was really fun. I was in and out of that series. I should go watch it. Yeah. A Short I mean, History of Weird a, Girls? It, a Short History of Weird Girls. All right. How's Annie doing? She's great. She also she has a, a new, not not as new as mine, but she has a beautiful daughter. Oh, that's and nice. I get, yeah, I get to, we, we live fairly close to each other, so I get to see her. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You, you theater people. Yeah. Sticking together. We do stick together. And I have to, like, I, I, I remember vaguely, I, I think I remember, maybe I just read it. But you did. You won an Obie Award for your performance, or that play won an Obie Award. Yes, yeah, that I. Uh, yes, I won an Obie Award for the performance, and then the play won as well. And that was your yeah. second one. Yes, I won a, a few years earlier. I had done a play called the The Drum of the Waves of Harakawa, which is um an seventeenth century Japanese play by this guy Chikamatsu. Um, you, I had done downtown. It was your Suzuki in it. There was there was actually no Suzuki yeah. in it. <laughs> we issued Suzuki for that what, for that production. What, what, outside of Suzuki, what was your the primary your other primary training as an actress? I I mean, I didn't actually I mean I I took acting all through college right. because I majored in theater. Um and then when I lived in Seattle, I studied there was a great Russian teacher there, Leonid Anisimov, who came um and taught for almost six months in Seattle, uh-huh. it taught Stanislavski and, and sort of claimed, I, I, I think it's probably true, you know, Stanislavski's later writings were not translated. So Stanislavski who founded, yeah. you know, what the we method. know was modern acting. Yeah. Um, uh, apparently he had this whole new way of teaching at the end of his life that, that, that Leonid was supposedly teaching and oh. it was a really beautiful oh. method. And then I studied with this other Russian guy, Gennady, uh, so he had the uh, untranslated writings. He knew. Apparently. He's, he's, like, <laughs> yeah. he's like Joe Smith in the plates. You know, apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got it. Exactly. I mean, who knows if he has them or right. not? I mean, there's matter. so much lore in right. Russia. You know, there's so sure. much, so many things that. Um, Why not to believe be passed him? around. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then I studied also this kind of Meyerhold technique with another Russian teacher who came to Seattle. Um and then, and then the rest of it, I what just kind of hold kind Meyer of, hold. What, what is that? Meyer holds who was, a also a famous, a famous, uh, Russian actor, um, and acted with Stanislavski and, uh, had a, another kind of method that was a more physical method of acting huh. that he, he developed. It's interesting so that, that like well. you seem to, have, you've got, you, you bypass the whole Americanization and legend of, you know, method bullshit and somehow managed to tap right into a direct descendants of the source material in Seattle. (laughs) So you didn't have to go through that whole fucking ego cluster fuck of the Straussberg, (laughs) uh, Wynn Hanman, Stanford Meisner and their fucking people. You were like, no, I got that. Yeah, I never took a Meisner class. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, it all no, came apparently from I got the direct. Yeah. The, yeah. But, you know, but again, you got the pure everyone's shit. making the claims. You got the pure stuff. Uh, 
I, I allegedly got the pure One shit. generation removed, but you, it, it, was, <laughs> it was close. It wasn't like some, yeah. <laughs> some like uh, f- yeah, second generation Jewish guy that came up through the Lower East Side and decided that he was a, an acting wizard. Good. <laughs> Not that I have anything against them. No, I know. They were, they were great acting they teachers. They were great. Those Americans. Yeah. Yes, they're just all great people. I just, uh, I'm just full of the beans sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, I, just, uh, I like throwing myth, myth, mythic people under the bus for a second. No, they should be thrown under the a bus. Little bit. That's what I say about my Russian acting teacher. Yeah. I think he was the real deal, yeah, yeah, but who knows, yeah, yeah. right? Sure. Everybody is just making shit up and pretending like they're the expert. Sure. I, I don't know if he was an expert, but the expert, but I liked him. Yeah. And I do feel like I... I still, I still have my notebook from that class, and I refer to it a lot. Oh, that's so. good. Yeah, you got you got a uh, you know a craft in place. And how many yeah. plays have you written outside of uh, what the Constitution? Um, probably, I've had four produced in New York, uh-huh. and there's probably twelve there. Some of which I I did in Seattle, and some of that have never been produced. Okay, I uh, one then one last question. Like, are you are you bummed you didn't win the Pulitzer? Because that must have been a hell of a day. I mean, you got to be a little bummed. I mean, it's like you're you're so close. <laughs> somebody, somebody wrote. You know, I've been getting a lot of um, hateful comments because I call the Constitution a living document in this ad. So on Facebook, the li- or are the of- Liberty people. Yeah, a lot of a lot of conservative and uh, and people who consider themselves originalists, I guess, yeah. have been just calling me like a moron and a communist uh-huh. and all these things. And um, someone really wrote a long thread about how I lost the Pulitzer, <laughs> and that should disqualify me, I guess, from speaking about anything. Um, it's amazing the research uh, these fucking monsters will do. Like, <laughs> like they could be putting their you know, their, their, their anal, weird, compulsive behavior to such good use, but it's like, no, let's teach the lady on television a lesson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the person compared it to the Titanic, saying like, well, you don't like congratulate the captain of the Titanic because the Titanic went down. I guess my Pulitzer nomination is like that because I didn't win. Um, yeah, I mean, of course I wish I had won. It would be really fucking awesome to say I was a Pulitzer winner, but the woman who won Jackie Sibyl's Drury is um, uh, Jackie Sibley's Drury. I just mispronounced her name. Um, she's, I mean, I couldn't lose to a more brilliant person and that makes it a little easier. I think if I had lost to somebody I didn't respect so deeply, I, I would Oh no, and it's off. great that you were, you know, recognized and all that. It's like, it's so unnerving that people, how people focus on, you know, one thing to attack an entire lifetime of work without taking into consideration or even knowing uh, what people really do. It's such a gross uh, element of yeah. our current culture. But uh, but uh, I love the work and it was great talking to you. Nice seeing you again. Nice seeing you too. Thanks for having me on. It really, it truly is a pleasure. I'm a big fan of your show and it was exciting to get to do this. I'm excited for you. And, I'm exci- and, I, and I thought it was exciting. Got some good laughs. You're a good laugher. That makes me happy. say hi to annie baker for me i will all right take it easy bye-bye okay as i said before what the constitution means to me is now streaming on amazon prime no music today i'm not at home 
Boomer lives. LaFonda lives. Monkey lives. I'm just hoping for okay. That's it. <laughs>